this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. in South Asian studies. An empire more populous, more amazing and more beneficent than that of Rome. These words from an India hand inspired a teenaged schoolboy to dedicate his life to the service of Britain's Indian Empire. This was in 1876. 75 years later, another Indian civilian would write about the Indian civil service being the head of Plato, a service minutely just, inflexibly upright. From George Curzon to Philip Mason, most colonial administrators had had classical educations, a process which ensured that the British Empire was always set aside the Roman Empire insofar as evaluating imperial greatness was concerned. It was not for the British to measure themselves against the empires of the European contemporaries. Mark Bradley has put together a series of essays, Classics and Imperialism in the British Empire, looking at links across various spheres of imperial life and thought. He will talk to us today about how classical reception influence the formation of ideology and polity in imperial Britain, both at home and abroad. Good morning, Matt. Okay, hello. Yes, yes. Hi, Dara. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the New Books Network. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be uh, Yeah. Um, so, could you just start off by telling us something about yourself and your research today before we go on to your very fascinating book? That's classics and imperialism in the British Empire. But how did you come up to the point where you wrote the book? Right, okay. Um, yeah, I'm uh, Dr. Mark Bradley, and I am a lecturer in ancient history at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Um, I uh, finished my PhD in 2004, uh, which uh, was looking at... Um, the use and perception of colours in ancient Rome and comparing um, ancient approaches to colour to modern approaches to colour. So a very classical subject. I'm a classicist by training. Um, I moved to Nottingham after my PhD and um, uh, worked my PhD into a book which came out in 2009. And at the same time, um, I was developing interests in... Uh, classical reception, the reception of ancient Greece and Rome in the modern world. And while I was in Cambridge, I teamed up um, with another PhD student called Emma Rice, who is a modern British imperial historian. Uh, And we decided to pool our interests and hold a conference on um, classics and imperialism during the British Empire. And that conference was held in Nottingham in 2005, um, and five years after the conference, uh, the volume um, based on that conference came out, which is the book uh, you're interviewing me about today. Um, I think that's a pretty comprehensive account. Um, I've since moved on. I, well, we'll talk about what I'm, I'm doing uh, yeah. later. Yeah. Uh, great. So, um, could you tell us something about the book itself? Okay, the book itself is a collection of ten essays um, by a combination of um, ancient historians and modern historians. So it really is interdisciplinary. It's uh, finding ways of of getting um, classicists and modern historians working together. Um, Each of the essays provides a window onto um, exploring the relationship between the ancient world and... um, uh, the modern world in the context of British Empire. So it's looking at the influence of ancient Greece and Rome on the development of uh, ideas during the British Empire. 
Um, it's also looking at the impact of the British Empire on how we look back at the ancient world. So it's a very two it's a two way process that the, uh, the book is examining. Um, okay, anything specific you want me to? Well, um, yeah, could you uh, just uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the essays that you have contributed to the volume? Things there's on the empire and the classical text, and obviously the introduction. Could you just tell us something about the main theme? Yeah. So um, apart from the kind of overall concept of volume, which is looking at this two-way relationship between classics and colonialism, um, my contributions are uh, twofold. First is the introduction, where I lay out the theory, the ideas, um, and I also have an extended. Uh, um, uh, examination of the British Museum as a case study for exploring uh, this relationship. Um, my main chapter in the volume is looking at uh, a classical text, which is a biography by the historian Tacitus of his father-in-law. His father-in-law was called Agricola, and he was um, the governor of Roman Britain in the first century AD. And this biography is looking at um, basically Roman imperialism in Britain, so Britain on the receiving end of empire. Um, and in fact, it's a very um, difficult text because Tacitus is not, does not thoroughly endorse um, Roman imperialism. He doesn't say Roman empire is a great thing and uh, the territory should be glad that they've been conquered by Rome. It's actually a very um, uh, um, uh, complex and sometimes critical account of Roman imperial influences in Britain. So I knew this text um, a long, long time ago. It's the text that I studied at school, it's the text that I worked on at university. But I wondered how this very difficult um, interpretation of imperialism was received, interpreted, evaluated during the British Empire. When I started doing my research, I found some very interesting things about how this text was uh, uh, drawn upon to reflect on um, British imperial activities in India and in other colonies. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was that's that's a, um, a contribution which looks at um, the influence of the classical text to the British Empire. Other contributions in the volume look at the influence of, uh, say, classical sculpture um, during the British Empire. So, one one of many windows onto the subject. So. It's very interesting because you mentioned uh, this thing about Tacitus being uh, somewhat ambivalent about the Roman Empire. He didn't really approve of it on all levels. And that is actually something that comes out very strongly when you read the early accounts of the British in India. So you think this examination, this self-doubt, was it something that actually proceeded from the familiarity with the classics? Yes, absolutely. I think what Tacitus was doing was... um, perhaps a rather different exercise from uh, what we might expect. I mean, Tacitus is an orator above everything else. He's an orator who becomes an is- a historian. And as an orator in ancient Rome, what you had to do is to be able to take command of different uh, sides of the argument. So you had to pretend to be somebody endorsing Roman imperialism, and you had to pretend to be somebody criticising Roman imperialism. And as a good orator, he could command both sides of the debate. Um, So, very interestingly, what he was doing with Roman imperialism in his text is actually quite similar to what the British started doing at the end of the 19th century in their own debates about empire. So, criticisms of empire didn't often come from the colonies, they came from within Britain itself. So, you have, you know, in the House of Parliament, debates about, you know, the British behaving badly, the British behaving well, the British spreading civilization, uh, the British being dominating and bullying. And what's happening is, uh, just like Tacitus in the first century AD, the British in the 19th century start playing the same game. Is They show their own responsibility as imperial colonizers uh, by taking command of both sides of the debate. So the debate itself becomes, you know, is owned by by the British in the same way that Tacitus owned the debate about Roman imperialism. So that was well, it's quite a complex idea, but it's, uh, it, it's one that started to make a lot of sense in various chapters in, in the volume, uh, but particularly mine on, on the Agricola. 
Yeah, it, it does make a lot of sense when you think about how it helps them process their ideas and think about, you know, the systems of administration. But uh, what about the fact that when the colonized come across these arguments, you know, that uh, from one of the empire builders that maybe empire is not such a good thing, would that not actually serve to, you know, kind of weaken the, you know, the united front, the colonial rules of the present? Um, yes, I mean, you, you know a lot more um, about the sort of details of modern history of this uh, um, uh, this idea um, uh, but certainly a lot of the you know a lot of the kind of post-colonial debates that are uh, very um, uh, common now in, in modern scholarship um, uh, were already sort of going on during the British Empire and of course yes they 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 weaken um, the uh, you know the overall concept of what the British are doing and eventually you know it's part by the British Empire collapses, um, but at the same time, I think there is a sort of a sense of healthy debate um, uh, going on, certainly within Britain, um, about the pros and cons of empire. Um, and so long as the British are scrutinising empire properly and identifying weak areas, they can stamp those out. Um, and this is, you know, again, I think this is what Tacitus was doing in the in in the first century AD. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, there is just a very interesting text, I don't know whether you come across it. It's a 1954 book by Philip Mason, The Men Who Ruled India. Okay. Yeah, he makes a lot of references to Plato. He actually really, like, presents the British in India as the heads of Plato, you know. And he talks about, like, this Platonic Empire, and that was, like, the main justification for the British being in India. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not familiar with the book. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea, it's an argument that I, uh, I, I, I come across very often. Um, I have a colleague in Reading called Feroz uh, Vasunia, who um, is, is a, a specialist on, on, on this aspect. And I mean, he's published several uh, things, articles and books, um, playing out this sort of argument, um, uh, certainly. Um, yeah, okay, so... Um, so, um, could you tell us something about the, you know, the different subsections that you've got in the book? Um, why did you include the books that you actually included? Okay, well, um, pretty much all of the contrib- contributors were speakers at the conference. Um, we found actually the conference worked uh, extraordinarily well in spite of the disparate subject matter. Um, it, there was a lot of coherence, a lot of dialogue between the papers. Mm-hmm. Um, what we have is uh, we have a collection of ten essays um, covering um, the full chronological range of the Second British Empire from the late 18th century through to the early mid um, 20th century, um, and they um, cover lots of different geographical territories as well. So we have, uh, first of all, um, um, looking at the contents list again to remind myself. Uh, we have Kostas Blasopoulos talking about um, 18th century uses of ancient history um, in uh, scholarship about empire and um, about the importance of ancient empires for uh, colonial policymakers towards the end of the 18th century. Um, and then after that we move on to Rama Mantana um, who is uh, a modern imperial historian who works on India, looking at, um, well, one of the things she looks at is the relationship that was drawn um, in the late 18th and early 19th century between Latin and Greek and um, the language uh, language of ancient India. The um, linguistic relationship between the two languages uh, was used as a way of establishing common ground between the British and the um, uh, uh, Indians um, in the early stages of, uh, um, of, of the conquest of uh, the, the colonization of India. Um, and uh, the idea is that basically both the British, the West, and India both come from the same roots. Um, and um, uh, the idea is the British parade themselves as being technologically and in terms of civilization more advanced, so their job in India then becomes to uh, kind of raise the um, civilization of India to the same 
level, um, you know, it's a civilizing mission. Uh, the idea is that um, the British themselves have, you know, in the past been conquered by the Romans, and now look how how advanced they are. And the same the principle applies that if the British can do the same thing in India as the Romans did in Britain, then uh, India will reach the same stage uh, stage of civilization. So, specifically looking at India. Um, Margaret Williamson in Chapter 3 looks at, um, uh, takes the focus on to the West Indies, um, looking particularly at a, uh, um, a British traveller who um, uh, writes literature uh, influenced by the classics in order to establish um, uh, the British as being uh, part of a um, sort of superior race. Um, then De uh, Debbie Chalice uh, is also looking at racial theory um, in the British Empire. She looks at um, uh, Victorian racial theory and she um, uh, what she argues is that basically in the 19th century a lot of emphasis was placed on physical beauty and racial perfection. Uh, among the ancient Greeks, and that's evident in all the sort of sculpture that you go and see in the British Museum. It's all very, very beautiful, very pure, um, you know, very strong physiques, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, there was a chap called Robert Knox in the 1840s and 1850s who argued that the ancient Greeks were actually more like the Saxons in Britain than they were like modern Greeks, um, and therefore the classical past and classical antiquities rightly belong to the British. Um, the Elgin marbles belong in Britain, not in modern Greece, because the modern Greeks um, don't really own them. So that was a, um, you know, that was a chapter I particularly enjoyed in the volume. Um, okay, and yeah, so from then, uh, there's my chapter on Agricola, um, and its use, its evaluation during the British Empire. There's a chapter by David Fern um, on um, the smuggling out of um, Egypt in the um, uh, late 19th century of a papyrus by Achilles, a poet called Achilles, and the way in which he um, uh, smuggled it out surreptitiously from Egypt in order to take it to the British Museum. So it's about, again, about British ownership of a classical text. Um, and then there are two chapters about um, the theme of decline in, um, uh, in the British Empire, the way in which um, uh, British imperial thinkers looks to the ancient world to think about, uh, about decline. Um, uh, so, for example, uh, Emma Rice uh, connects a disease theory which was developed to explain a crisis in ancient Greece in the 4th century BC, connects that theory to fears about the dangers posed by um, tropical territories to Western health during the British Empire. So another um, uh, different window. And the final two chapters do something quite different. Um, uh, final two chapters look at efforts to wrest ownership of classical past from the dominating grasp of British. So first, um, uh, Abhishek uh, Kaika looks at an Indian Muslim poet at the end of the 19th century who exploited classical literature in his own work to play the British at their own game. He said, actually, you know, the colonised themselves can use uh, the classical heritage for their own benefit, to develop their own literature, their own cultural identity. So that was a way of taking the emphasis away from the metropolis onto um, uh, colonies themselves. And secondly, Margaret, uh, final chapter in volumes, Margaret Malamud, uh, who looks at America at the turn of the 20th century, um, where uh, classical motifs in urban architecture, in theatre, in spectacle, um, start to advertise America as the new manifestation of imperial folk in the modern age, not Britain. So you know, the, the volume comes full circle. Um, this is quite a, uh, a number of different windows onto uh, this uh, relationship between
classics and colonialism. Uh, so I'm quite happy with how volume shaped out and the, the, the general coverage that it has. It's, it's not, of course, a comprehensive history of the relationship between classics and colonialism, but it does, you know, it covers a lot of, a lot of ground. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the way it's, uh, it's, it's come out. Yeah, it, uh, it's quite linear. If you look at it, there's a flow down there. It's chronological. I mean, you start off with the ancient world and then actually move on, you know, to something that's post-colonial. And for some might argue neo-colonial. So that's very interesting, I mean, in terms of structure. But uh, that's very interesting in terms of structure. But the one thing is, why have you chosen to begin the book with an examination of the British museum and its role in forging links between the classical world and the empire? Yes. Um, no, I. I, uh, I mean, it's, it's. You know, we all know about the uh, the Elgin marbles and the, the debate about whether the Elgin marbles belong in Britain or in Greece, and that's still ongoing. But it's a very complex debate, and uh, you know, I can't see British Museum giving giving the marbles back in a hurry because, in fact, that's just the tip of the iceberg. In you know, not only in the British Museum but all in museums all around the world, there are hundreds and hundreds of artifacts that actually belong somewhere else that were taken away from their place of origin um, as a result of the exercise of power and colonialism in various territories. Um, so I, I looked at, um, you know, I looked at the broader picture of this within the British Museum and the development of British Museum's relationship uh, with the classical world and how this relationship changed as the British Empire developed. So it's a very two-way relationship. Um, so in the um, British Museum founded uh, in 1759. At first, it was celebrated for its um, um, its natural history, its collections of stuffed animals and insects from all around the world. And that, of course, is, all, is, is itself a, um, a result of um, Britain's imperial uh, expansion. It, it, you know, it has the power, the resources, the reach to get um, animals and plants and insects and all sorts of things from, uh, from the far reaches of the empire. But by the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, classical antiquities start to take over as the main focus of the British Museum. Uh, it becomes very important for Britain to say, we are the um, inheritors of the ancient Greeks and Romans. You know, we are the new Rome, the new Greece. Uh, we have the technological superiority, the cultural superiority, um, and uh, we have a grasp of morality and philosophy comparable to that of the ancient Greeks. So it becomes very important for the British Empire to start amassing classical antiquities from Greece and Italy. Um, and the Elgin Marbles is just one of many, many examples. In fact, um, uh, Parliament in the mid-19th century releases funds specifically for um, the uh, acquisition of artefacts from um, Italy and Greece. So you have travellers, uh, you have um, uh, uh, colonial officers going over to um, uh, uh, the Greek world, the Roman world, and buying things with their, you know, uh, with their um, uh, quite considerable uh, financial resources. And those financial resources are supplied by empire, imperial income into Britain starts to uh, be used to purchase um, antiquities for the British Museum. So that's one thing, and that goes on and on and on. It stops in the 20th century for obvious reasons. Um, you know, it stops when British imperialism starts to crumble. Um, but the other interesting pattern is uh, the structure of departments within the British Museum. So um, uh, the Department of Antiquities was founded, I think, in 1807. Um, and uh, that combined Greek and Roman antiquities, it had Romano British antiquities, and it had some um, uh, antiquities from further afield, from India, uh, from um, uh, across the Atlantic, and so on and so forth. Um, in, uh, I think it was 1861, the British Museum decided to split this uh, collection into two departments, the Department of Greek and Roman antiquities, classical antiquities, and the Department of Oriental antiquities. So there comes an east-west split in these departments, and so visitors to the museum can compare 
the antiquities of Greece and Rome, which, of course, are much prettier and much nicer than all of these kind of weird things from India and, uh, and Africa and so on. Um, so it becomes this real east-west divide. Um, and then a little bit later, um, because Oriental antiquities included uh, finds from Roman Britain, they weren't part of classical antiquities, they were uh, part of um, Oriental antiquities, they decide to create a separate department of Romano-British um, uh, antiquities. So you get kind of three different departments where you can compare the relationship between Roman Britain, Greece and Rome, and um, the imperial peripheries. So, I mean, that, those are a couple of examples of interesting findings from that, that research. So the British Museum is a really, really good case study for thinking about, about what's going on and how it changes over time. So was there any attempt made to export this classical culture to the museums or exhibition houses in the colonies? Um, this is a subject that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Thoreau's Vassunia has worked on. Certainly, um, I mean, there's certainly a, a lot of emphasis on neoclassical architecture in British India. There's some very good work that's been done on that. So the idea that the British presence in India starts to look very classical. Um, the other aspect of this is that in the 19th century, the British Museum starts to make casts, make copies of its um, statues, its sculpture, um, and then to sell those to um, other um, uh, collections, both in Britain and further afield. I don't know of any specific examples of um, uh, casts being sent uh, over to the colonies, but there may well be. Um, but again, this is, British, this is the British Museum saying, we own these classical antiquities and we can sell fake copies of them um, uh, around the world. So uh, it's a way of advertising that, that sort of ownership, that uh, ownership of classical past. Um, yeah, okay. So basically when this was in the classical culture, when it was exported to the colonies, what was the idea? Was the idea that... Uh, colonized would look at classical culture and think that this was something they were to aspire to or what is supposed to look at the British as their ideal, you know, the modern British? I think that's, I mean, that's certainly an idea that's, uh, um, that's toyed with by various contributions in my volume. I mean, certainly Rama Mantana's uh, uh, work on um, the philology of um, uh, ancient India and its relationship to Greek and Latin. The idea is that um, you know, if the, if the uh, um, colonies start uh, absorbing and learning Greek and Roman culture, um, they can eventually get to the same stage of education and civilization as the British. And the idea is then, you know, there were theorists, uh, as, as you will know, theorists who were arguing that when the Brit when the uh, when India reaches that level of civilization, the British have achieved their job and they can leave. So there is this idea of progress and uh, classics, the classical world plays an important part in um, achieving and reaching this progress. Um, so that's mm -hmm. certainly one idea, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have... Hegemony and Garnacopia, to illustrate this, to on the Okay, so hegemony and cornucopia. We were going to call the volume hegemony and cornucopia um, in the British Empire, um, but that's quite an awkward title. I don't think many people would, uh, would understand. Uh, you know, that was about it. Wouldn't, wouldn't be a very attractive title. So we were told to change it. But nonetheless, um, these were two themes that guided the original conference, and uh, that quite a few of the contributions to the volume speak to. Um, two themes. Uh, I mean, hegemony is. Uh, it's a complex um, concept which has had a lot of uh, uh, recent scholarship um, devoted to it, but the kind of subtle um, uh, command of um, uh, cultural superiority exercised by colonial powers um, uh, over um, uh, the subjects. Um, and it, it's kind of very related to work of Edward Said on, on, on discourses of power on architecture and literature and visual culture and theatre and drama and all that sort of stuff and the way in which subtly all of those discourses um, uh, exercise power over um, uh, other people. 
So hegemony is one of the, um, uh, because so many, so many of the chapters in my volume are about discourses, hegemony is a very useful theme to focus on. Cornucopia is another um, uh, important theme, which is cornucopia is the horn of plenty, um, and it's a symbol from the ancient world, which um, uh, figures used to, like emperors, used to uh, carry around these horns filled with wheat and um, grapes and things that are showing prosperity and, and, and material resources. Um, and this um, symbol becomes important again in the British Empire, the idea that um, uh, British are, um, you know, have the resources to, uh, to help the world uh, to you know, spread goods around the world. Um, so, yeah, these two themes uh, are, are, are very important. You can see them playing out in the British Museum. So the idea of the British Museum has all of these classical antiquities and antiquities in Berber field. It has it amasses resources in one space in the metropolis. This is cornucopia in uh, practice. But also by doing this, it exercises a, a form of hegemony over the rest of the world. Um, so, yeah, quite complex concepts. Um, but they do feature in, in many of the uh, chapters throughout the volume. It's on page 125, in fact, you have an argument, you know, where Tacitus talks about the Britons being gradually led astray by the allurements of vice, you know, all that is called civilization when it was, in fact, only a feature of their enslavement. So that, I think, could you link it to the concept of cornucopia and the fact that, you know, the British Empire, or in fact, all the other European empires at the time, started out as, you know, very commercial entities. So the basis for colonialism or, in fact, inter-interaction between, like, the colonists, the colonialists and the natives was, like, based around in the acquisition of material goods. Yes, I mean, this is... Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly... I mean, this, obviously, the, the origins of the um, British activities in India are something I don't know a great deal about, but obviously the, the, the economic focus of the yeah. uh, in India is very important. Um, the Roman Empire is driven by, I think, rather different concerns, and it's, you know, it's about uh, um, uh, military conquest and expansion of Rome is a way of achieving glory within Roman society. So the idea that to become a proper Roman, you have to kill a lot of barbarians, and you have to take over their territories. And this is, you know, this is the kind of logic behind which the Roman Empire uh, um, uh, expands. So that's a rather different focus from the British, uh, the origins of the British Empire. Um, but certainly, this cynical um, comment by Tacitus that all of the, you know, the British, when they were taken over by the Romans, the British thought, "Ooh, look at all these baths! Look at all these." Beasts, look at all these aqueducts. Aren't they brilliant? Aren't the Romans doing us a favour by civilising us? Okay, so that's Romanization and perhaps you know, civilization. That's the, the the positive side of, uh, of empire. Um, but Tacitus says they were all being duped. In fact, the Romans were turning them into slaves. Okay, that's that's a very famous comment by Tacitus um, in the Agricola. The idea is that empire looks good, but actually it's just a form of um, enslavement, and the way that that single passage in Tacitus was um, uh, uh, used and quoted by people during the British Empire is very interesting. Sometimes people attacking the British Empire would quote that and say, uh, "This is what the British are doing in India and elsewhere. They're just it's essentially a form of enslavement." Other people said, "Well, actually, the British have learned." from the ancient world, and they're not going to make the same mistakes. So the British are spreading Christianity and really good things that the Romans never thought of um, uh, around their empire. So Tacitus said that about the Romans. You can't say that about the British. So, you know, it was used in very interesting ways. Yeah, so I probably answered your, your question specifically. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, because it's an argument that no really comes up when you talk about railways, specifically railways, you know, because the British introduced railways to India, and uh, that was supposed to be really good. I mean, the propaganda that you get in the modern history textbook is that, you know, railways united the country, you give Indians a sense of being Indian, or well created an Indian identity, and then you have this little subtext always, you know, that the British never really intended to build a railway for the benefit of the Indians, it was only so that, you know, they could get their armies to any point in time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so, yeah, um, 
I think this is the interesting thing about um, that there's, and both in, in the ancient world and in modern imperial history, there's no single way of interpreting any imperial activity. You know, there are two very different ways of responding to imperial activity. You know, one very positive um, uh, uh, interpretation, one very critical and negative interpretation, and both of these seem to exist side by side. So I was interested in thinking about how classical texts were used to explore these two sides of the debate. Um, and uh, Richard Hingley has done a lot of very good work on um, uh, the uses made of Imperial Rome by British policymakers and thinkers, um, uh, particularly in terms of you know uh, learning from past mistakes in order to improve the way the British are uh, dishing out their uh, um, their kind of imperial activities. So, as a classicist, if I ask you another populist question, how would yep. you compare the British Empire and the Roman Empire? British Empire, Roman Empire. Um, well, the British did more of it. They, they, um, the Roman Empire was for a long time the very, you know, the largest imperial territory uh, that anybody had ever, ever, ever uh, known about. Um, the British made a big point of outdoing the Romans in that respect. Um, okay, so that's one aspect. I mean, the other aspect is, you know, the advantage the British had in their um, uh, imperial activities was that they could claim to be spreading the true religion. Um, um, and, you know, so, I mean, you, you get this played out in some colonial context. Um, the Romans didn't claim to... Uh, um, set out to impose their gods on, uh, on their subjects. In fact, what they often did was they encountered um, a new community who worshipped a new god, and the Romans actually stole that god for themselves and added it to their, um, to their pantheon of gods. So that was a different... The use of religion was quite a different process. The British claimed to be um, uh, uh, sort of doing one better than the Romans. Um, okay... Um, there's a lot of comparable emphasis on uh, the um, uh, acquisition of resources, uh, the um, improvement of the wealth of Rome and Britain during their respective empires. There's a lot of comparative stuff there. Um, I mean, these are very general comments, and there are others better informed than myself to uh, um, supply details on these. Um, Okay, I mean, yeah, I, I, could, I could go on, but you get the idea. Yes, and uh, in fact, on page 290, you mentioned that the early historians of classical scholarship did not discuss the relationship between classics and modern empire. So why do you think it took so long for people to start making these connections and these comparisons? Um... Yeah, so this is, this is uh, actually Feroz Bassunia who wrote the um, final section for you. Um, why did it take so long? Well, I think it starts to happen um, when um, uh, British imperial activities um, uh, are stepped up and when scrutiny starts to be applied to British imperial Activities. So really, this is why my volume focuses on the Second British Empire. This is when classical scholarship starts to look, starts to compare ancient and modern empires, um, starts to think about the pros and cons of um, of empire. So, so it's a long time since I uh, since I looked at this um, section. No, I think that's that's that seems to be the answer that I go with that. Okay. And uh, one more thing, was it only the British who actually tried to appropriate the Greco-Roman world for their own purposes, or was it like other colonial powers as well, like the French, for instance, what relationship 
Yeah, no, this is one area where my volume falls down a bit in that yeah. the focus is solely on the British yeah. and what's going on in Britain and how some of those yeah. ideas spread around to the colonies. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, uh, and I, I'm not an expert in this, but um, the, the French and the German Germans were playing the same game and they were competing with the British for ownership of classical past. So the British Museum was very impressive and had lots of classical antiquities, but so did the Louvre. Um, and so did the Glyptotech in Munich, um, and they were all competing to gather as much of classical antiquity as possible to take ownership to be the inheritors of classical past. Um, in fact, because the British Empire was so much larger than anywhere else, um, the British ended up having more uh, more resources, more reach, more uh, money to do this. So the British Museum had, you know, probably a much more impressive collection of antiquities than uh, the French and the Germans had, um, but because this shifted over time. Um, so, uh, absolutely. So, on the one hand, you know, different powers around Europe were playing the same game um, and you know, exercising the same um, authority over their own subjects. Most um, Margaret Malamud shows uh, um, in the final chapter here and as we know about uh, the influences of Greece and Rome on modern American culture. America started from uh, well, the end of the 19th century to take command of the classical past in rather different ways. They do have collections of classical antiquities, but a uh, huge emphasis on neoclassical architecture, on making their cities, some of which were very new, seem like models of ancient Rome um, uh, in order to demonstrate their own grandeur, their own um, superiority um, and uh, yeah, Margaret Malamud talks a lot about popular culture in America and how um, uh, sort of drama and literature um, was influenced by uh, by Greece and Rome. So, and that's that's been ongoing. So, in as much as we can argue that America has um, an empire these days, that empire is still very much informed by um, uh, a lot of Greek and Roman ideas. And so, uh, what? Yeah, please go on. Uh, please go on. Sorry. Uh, please continue about uh, the relationship between America and you know the empire uh, being from there. Oh, I would, I would, but I. Um. Well, um, in my uh, department in Nottingham, there's a PhD student who's just started who is looking at the um, uh, influence of um, Thucydides, who's an ancient Greek historian who writes about Greek empire. Um, so Thucydides' ideas about empire uh, are being used in um, uh, uh, modern um, uh, Republican politics in America. Now, I don't, I'm not supervising that, and I don't know much more about the details, but certainly there's, a, there's a, an interesting overlap there. So, you know, this is still going on. Yeah. Classics is not a dead subject. It is very much, you know, informing uh, developments that are going on in the 21st century, as well as, as my volume shows, developments that happened in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Um, so, how do you, so, how do you think decolonization actually affected the study of classics, or at least in terms of looking at its links with the British Empire? Um, well, again, so this is... And basically, within classics, um, we, when you talk about relationship of the classical world to the modern world, uh, there are two models. And one model we call the classical tradition, and it imagines ancient Greece and Rome pushing their way forward through time and influencing uh, the modern world in a very kind of, you know, autonomous um, uh, kind of uh, steamroller effect. So, uh, you know, it's a push model. The ancient world is really powerful and it pushes its way forward into the modern world. Another model is um, classical reception, where you um, see modern people grabbing the ancient world and pulling it forward for their own purposes. Oh, we can use the Roman Empire to help us think about British Empire, so it's a pull model. Um, my approach is committed to um, a bit of both, to the idea of a push and pull effect. Um, and one way this plays out, um, as, as you alluded to, is not only is the ancient world influencing modern ideas, um, 
but modern ideas, modern developments in empire, modern developments in politics, modern, modern ideas about race are also affecting the way that we study ancient Greece and Rome. So if you look at the important subjects in classics in the 20th century, one of them has indeed been empire. So there are lots and lots and lots of books produced about the Athenian Empire, the Roman Empire, during the heyday of the British Empire. From the 1960s, there are lots of studies of women and female behaviour in Greece and Rome because feminism, because um, uh, female roles in modern society become so much more important as talking points. So, uh, you know, by all means, Greek and Roman approaches to women are um, um, uh, being used to help us think about modern um, gender issues, but at the same time, modern gender issues are shaping the way we look at uh, ancient Greece and Rome. Um, so, I mean, those are two examples of, uh, um, of, that, of that influence playing out. Um, so, Mark, where do you see your own research fitting into this? How do I see my own research fitting into this? Well, I mean, this, as I said at the beginning, this is a little bit of a sideline for me. I, I teach um, classical reception. I teach the influence of the ancient world on modern uh, uh, film and theatre and novels and literature and architecture and that sort of thing. I teach it to my undergraduates. Um, and so I have interest in this, but my own research is principally uh, looking into uh, um, aspects of Roman culture. Um, so I don't know if I'll return to this emphasis on um, uh, classics in the modern world in my research. Uh, I'm doing uh, a very different sort of um, uh, uh, area of research at the moment. Um, I mean, do you want me to say a little bit about my, my current research? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, okay. So, I mean, for a long time I've been interested in uh, Roman approaches to... Uh, to dirt and pollution and to things being unclean. Um, and I did my master's thesis back in 1999 um, looking at uh, how Romans clean their clothes. And the interesting thing was that Romans, these hyper-civilized race in the ancient world, used human urine almost always to clean their clothes. Oh, that's urine nasty. It's a powerful um, grease-dissolving detergent. So it actually does work. And in fact, lots of ancient societies have used urine to uh, get stains out of their clothes, to you know, uh, remove oil and grease and that sort of thing. But my, my interest was sparked by the idea, how did the Romans get around the problem of using human waste um, to uh, clean themselves? Um, and so that got me thinking more broadly about the role of cleanliness and pollution in ancient societies. And that's what my current project is. So I've just finished editing a volume for Cambridge University Press looking at the city of Rome in ancient, medieval and modern times uh, and how uh, issues of cleanliness and purity and pollution have informed the development of the history of the city of Rome. Um, so that's a collection of essays by different people, modern uh, experts and ancient experts, um, uh, looking at this theme. Um, and I'm writing a book, which is just my book, uh, on foul bodies in ancient Rome. So bodies in ancient Roman society that were um, uh, that were perceived to be disgusting or didn't fit expectations of what a body should look like. So uh, I'm looking at really fat bodies in ancient Rome, really thin bodies, you know, giants and dwarfs, smelly bodies, bodies that are used for unclean or disgusting purposes, that sort of thing, um, in order to help me understand the Roman value system. So you can see this is the sort of thing that I'm, I'm, I'm working on now. So I am interested, again, in, in comparing modern and ancient uh, approaches to dirt and pollution. Um, in fact, we would never think about washing our clothes in urine. Uh, but, you, but actually, until 1935, fulleries in England used human urine to prepare clothing. Um, and uh, there are other examples of, of, um, uh, of urine and human waste being used um, in industrial processes that you know, we find slightly uh, uneasy. Um, but, I mean, it's the same sort of thing as uh, you know, some people don't like the idea of using manure to grow their vegetables. 
other people don't like the idea of using artificial fertilizers to grow the vegetables. It's a very, you know, complex approach to what is appropriate and what is inappropriate in modern societies. Um, and uh, this is a very important theme in anthropology. There's uh, an important anthropologist called Mary Douglas who wrote a book called Purity and Danger. I don't know if you, uh, if you, if you uh, read that or come across that. Um, I mean, basically, she argued that um, uh, dirt in any society is matter out of place. And uh, when something is out of place, it changes from culture to culture. Yeah, that is subjective, yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, for us, uh, um, uh, urine on clothes is matter out of place, but it's not matter out of place for the Romans because urine actually cleans clothes. You see what I mean? You know, for some of us... Uh, manure on our uh, vegetable patches is matter out of place. Um, for some of us, biological um, conditioners in our washing machines is matter out of place. Um, so I am interested in comparing modern and ancient systems, and I think every classicist today needs to be acutely aware of the relationship between the ancient world and the modern world. You know, we're always in facing this struggle of justifying why. We study societies that died out 2,000 years ago. Um, and I hope, you know, my book on the British Empire is one example, one small example of why it's so important to, uh, to know what's going on in the ancient world and how it's affected the development of modern ideas. Um, and, you know, comparing uh, approaches to dirt in ancient Rome to approaches to dirt in modern Rome and the differences and similarities between the two is actually very enlightening for thinking about our own approach to life and identity and, and culture and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, in terms of similarities, I mean, a lot of very ultra-orthodox modern Indians that drink how you eat on human urine for therapeutic purposes, and that is, I don't get it, but yeah, you could make a comparison. Yeah, I remember, well, I mean, back in the early 90s, um, I remember watching television and uh, there was presenter Des O'Connor and uh, he was interviewing an actress, a famous actress, whose name I can't remember now, but she came on um, and she said, as part of the interview, she said, oh, I drink a glass of my own urine every night before I go to bed. Um, um, and, you know, the idea is it sort of purges the body. There's something that's dirty, purges the body. And it, I think it does have uh, some proven medical, positive medical effects. Um, uh, but then uh, Des O'Connor, I think it was Des O'Connor, it might be Terry Wogan, I can't quite remember, um, said, oh, do you wash your hands afterwards? I suppose there's no point, really, is there? <laughs> Which is quite funny, you know, playing around with the tensions of uh, uh, what is appropriate and inappropriate in, you know, in our engagement with, uh, with waste. Um, so, yeah, that got me thinking. Yes, so uh, thanks very much. I mean, that was an amazing insight, I mean, about what is acceptable across time and space, you know, and obviously a book goes somewhere towards bridging the gap between, well, the ancient and the modern, you know, especially in terms of empires and administrative systems. So it was a pleasure to have you on the New Books Network. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm only sorry you are not continuing your research on the empire. Thank you very much. But uh, thanks again, and uh, I'm sure this will be delightful for our listeners. Goodbye. No problem. Okay. Okay, I'll uh, speak to you soon. So, for a lovely interview about a very obvious, very assiduously nurtured, but rarely articulated series of linkages, the classical world and the British Empire. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.